All right. Welcome to the matchup. Woohoo! <laughs> the first episode <laughs> of the matchup, a storytelling podcast from St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Winston-Salem, where you, the listener, gets to decide who told the most compelling story. I'm your host, Jason Franklin, and today it is my pleasure to welcome two friends. Hello, friends. Hey. Hi, Jason. Hi. The Reverend Dr. D. Dixon Kinzer and the Reverend Sarah Audrey Graves. Thank you for being here for the first episode. That's so exciting. The D stands for domination. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say David. <laughs> for those of you not here, uh, Dixon is the rector of St. Paul's. Sarah, how would you describe his job? Dixon's job is like a pinball machine. Okay. It's like you, you fire off the little ball and it just starts pinging all around and lighting up all these different things. And there's this really fun energy to it. Um, and then eventually the, the ball just sort of drops down. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting description. At some point you lose. <laughs> it can only go on for so long. <laughs> yeah. 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 And Sarah is associate rector here. Dixon, how would you describe Sarah's job? Uh, Sarah's job is taking things that are already working and making them better. Like Sarah is Aww. an improver in our system. And so Right now, she's in charge of like all of our formation, and um, you watch her light up when she's like taking things. Like, well, we have this class, we have this thing, but then like growing it, creating new things, imagining new things. Um, she's an improver. Thank you. That's so nice of you to say. Well, to the to the pinball metaphor, it's like your work is lighting up all these different ministry areas. Like yeah. you, you sort of oversee so much cool stuff that's going on. And you also get to see, like, when the pinball goes up into the dark corners, you, you get to see how the sausage is made and how, mm -hmm. um, you know, the inner workings of a church community really run and, and have to run really well. But to that same energy of improving, like, you are going around lighting up with enthusiasm all of these ministry areas that are really cool. That was my thinking behind that. It's <laughs> not just the game that you lose. <laughs> well, but I think it's also, this is not what the podcast is about, but it is, it's actually interesting because my work suits my particular personality type and it, it helps me play to my strengths, which is lots of fingers and lots of different pies, paying attention to things, kicking things out, creating new ideas. You're better at finishing what you start. <laughs> right. Like, and so that's yeah. why you're better at your job than I would do at your job. <laughs> awesome. So today's theme for the first episode is craziest Christian saint. Um, Dixon, how would you describe a Christian saint? That's a great question because the way that Anglicans do saints is different than how other traditions. I mm -hmm. think some people like popular consciousness. Um, I would say people imagine the saints. Tell me if you agree with this, Sarah. Mm -hmm. From kind of the Roman Catholic perspective, they are kind of quasi magical beings, or have at mm -hmm. least had to perform some sort of like they've had to have a miracle. They, you know, there, there's kind of this this list of things that um, often include some kind of supernatural qualification and then they um because they their the pantheon and roman catholicism developed in the middle ages they sort of started to act as intermediaries between people and god mm -hmm. like god was terrifying in the middle ages gonna mm -hmm. send you to hell and so i could pray to saint joseph because well, he's a dude like me mm -hmm. yeah which is where like you see and i was going to talk about this with the presentation of mine but like the cult of the saints that comes out in the early middle ages which is like 
you find a specific saint that you relate to and you hear of their reputation for Mm. maybe like an ailment that you have, like, oh, I've got a backache. Therefore, I need to pray to such and such saints and the cult of the saints, which really means like care in in the Latin. It means cult means care. So care of the saints, like I'm going to kind of cultivate this like community Mm. around sainthood for like relief of things like they they are there to intercede to God on my behalf to make things happen, like to heal me or to protect me or to whatever it is. and that is not Anglican. <laughs> yeah. So what we did with them, and I think because our tradition developed, kept pushing back on a lot of you know, medieval, um, more, what we would have considered more superstitious um, expressions of the faith. Um, the saints for us, I always describe as like, like they're the people whose lives are worthy of consideration and invitation. Um, and so they, they are part, we, we recognize them as part of the great cloud of witnesses. They're part of, you know, the, that are around us, which is everybody that's ever, you know, um, been part of the kingdom of God and joins us around the Eucharistic table. We just highlight specific stories because they are illustrative of certain things, either from the Bible or Christian history that teach us how to be faithful in our day, the way they were. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put that. And for listeners, us is the Episcopal Church, which is part of the Anglican Communion, which is one branch of the Christian faith. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And to, to add, because I had to do this research for my saint, there are in, in the calendar of saints for like uh, Roman Catholicism, for Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, for the Coptic Church, they have their own calendars. Um, so does the Church of England. And so does the Episcopal Church, which is in the United States. And the Church of England, even though we are centered in the uh, Anglican tradition together with the Church of England, they have a different calendar. Oh, interesting. And they're not the same, like uh, the American Episcopal Church has a different, it's not that different from the Church of England, but there are slight differences. So, yeah, heads up. Yeah. Which is intrinsic to Anglicanism, because we're all about, at our best, an indigenous expression. Totally. Of yeah. the Jesus thing. Another thing that's worth noting about saints um, is that we remember them on the days of their death. Mm-hmm. So the feast day of a saint is the day of their martyrdom, the day of their passing. Not their birthday. Not their birthday. Yeah. So uh, January 21st is Martin Luther King Day, mm-hmm. 20th in mm-hmm. the United States, the federal holiday. It's yeah. his birthday. But in the Christian feast calendar, Martin Luther King's birthday is April 4th. Or his feast day is April 4th because yeah. that's the day of his martyrdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So, I mean, just just so y'all know, listening, we set some ground rules for the theme, and, and there's a little bit of debate. No this, biting. <laughs> <laughs> today's theme is technic is specifically Christian saints, the craziest Christian saints. Um, recognizing that there may be saints that out there that aren't part of the Christian tradition. Also, we're not specifically talking about saints from just the Anglican Church or just the Catholic Church. So, it's sort of broader to give some chance for creativity. Um, in each episode, the two presenters will present their case. We'll talk a little bit about it. And after the episode, you get to vote on who made the most compelling argument. I should also mention that only I know, and there's so much power in that, who <laughs> each of the two are presenting. And they also don't know who's going to go first until now. 
I was wondering how we were going to settle that. <laughs> so Dixon, nervous. are you ready to present your case for the craziest saint? Can we settle it with push-ups? Because then Sarah will have to go first. <laughs> yeah, no. No. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I would be excited and thrilled to go first. Fantastic. Okay. I'm, I'm, this has been a long time that we've been like holding on to this. All right. Yeah. My saint, craziest Christian saint, Sadhu Sundar Singh. Do you know Sundar? No. Okay. Okay. So, um, he's born in Ludhiana, India, which is like the Punjab region of India. And um, he's born into privilege. Um, he's a, a, a national of that land. Um, and he's super close with his mom. He's born into a, a, a family of privilege. Um, and he's there kind of in the wake of the first wave of European missionaries coming to India. So, British East India Company. The Dutch, the Moravians were a big influence. Um, and he's close with his mother and has always had kind of like a religious bent. And she wants him to become a sadhu, which is like a, a Hindu holy man or Sikh, depending on which region you're in. And basically, this is like, I was trying to think about the analog for it. You know, a, a sadhu is someone that chooses a life of extreme asceticism. They, are, they, they don't work. They're like itinerant. Um, they wear a, a saffron yellow robe, you know, um, and like you still see this today. There are sadhus, um, mm -hmm. Hindu and Sikh mm -hmm. sadhus. Um, but that was like the way you expressed this particular kind of religious devotion. And they got all kinds of attention, like having a sadhu to your home was like a great honor, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. um, and his mom always wanted to be a sadhu. So unfortunately, she dies when he's like 14. And he gets super, super angry. And at the time, um, because of his position of privilege, he has ended up um, being educated at like a Presbyterian missionary school. That was like the best school. Mm -hmm. And he's angry and he particularly channels his anger against this like impositional religion, you know, this, these Presbyterians. And so um, he's he, like, there's a story about him like ripping out the pages of the Bible. They would make him read and burning each page. Right. Um, and Rock so and roll. Yeah. like super, super <laughs> angry um, and, and resentful. And but what's going on, of course, is he's got all this grief. And so mm. he basically gets to the point that he's so despaired by his grief and his anger that he decides he's going to kill himself. And so um, he talks about how he uh, takes a um, uh, takes a cold bath in the morning. He had resolved to do this. Um, and um, oh, and I should say th these are. There's a couple of different sources I'm working from. Um, one is A.J. Epsami's biography of Sundar Singh that he wrote in 1958. Um, also, Epsami and B.H. Um, Streeter did a, a book about like the sadhu, uh, a study in mysticism and practical religion. Also, Sundar Singh himself was a prolific writer. And so there's a couple of things um, at the master's feet with and without Christ, 1922 and 1929 are his... Mm -hmm. um, his writing. So a lot of these, I'm going to read you some quotes that are from either their telling of his story as he told it to them or his own. Um, but basically he says that um, he had, um, he had resolved that um, on this morning, it's December 19th, 1904. He rose early, took a cold bath and prepared to take his own life. And at that moment he began to pray. He said, but he, Sundar said, I didn't pray to the Christ of Christianity because I hated Christianity. I prayed like an atheist, for I had lost my faith in God. His prayer was simple. Basically, if there was a God, or there was a way to salvation, if something was out there, 
that it needed to be shut. He needed to know what it was. And if this prayer wasn't answered, his plan was to lay his head on a railway line at, and at 5 a.m. the train was going to come through. and, and Right? Like high stakes. Yeah. Wow. So, so basically he takes his bath and he starts praying this prayer from 3 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. And as an atheist, as an atheist <laughs> to God that he doesn't believe in. Right? Sure. Right. Okay. Um, and in this prayer, suddenly sometime during the, around 4 30 AM, he says the room was filled with wonderful light. And I saw a glorious figure standing in the room. I thought it was Buddha, Krishna, or some other saint who I used to worship, but was quite, and was quite prepared to worship him. But I was surprised to hear these words. How long are you going to persecute? I died for you. For thee, I gave my life. I couldn't understand. I couldn't speak a single word. Then I saw the scars of the living Christ, whom I thought of as a great man who used to live in Palestine and was now dead. But I found he was living. The living Christ was dead and gone. But I was now, but he wasn't. He was before me, and I was now prepared to worship him. I saw his loving face. Though I had burnt a Bible the day before yesterday, he was not angry. I was changed. There I knew the living Christ, the Savior of the world, and my heart was full of a joy and peace which I cannot express. Wow. I know. Wow. That's amazing. He has this like... Remind me, what year is this? This was um, was, uh, 1904. Okay. Um, So he he has this mystical experience of Jesus. I mean, it's very familiar to like this Road to Damascus stuff, Mm -hmm. which on the one hand, you could say... Oh, he's, he's just cribbing it. On the other hand, you could say, mm-hmm. well, the Bible kind of describes the patterns of things that God does in the world. And I guess that's not off the table. Mm-hmm. So there he is. Mm-hmm. He has this experience. Whatever it is, it changes him. Um, and so he basically becomes a Christian, a Jesus worshiper, um, which immediately makes him a target of persecution in his own family. His father disowns him. Wow. Um, and his brothers start trying to poison him. <laughs> Like several times they try to kill him and poison him. Um, There's a story, and I couldn't verify the source, where the villagers threw snakes at him. Um, (laughs) As you do. (laughs) Like you do. I mean, everybody knows that's how you... That would run me out of town. (laughs) It would definitely run Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) So these Anglican missionaries are the ones that end up helping him and like rescuing him from all this persecution. And so he ends up... um, That's how he ends up in our tradition. And so his... Faith develops under their tutelage um, until uh, 1905, when he's finally of legal age that he can choose to be baptized of his own volition. I think it was 16. Um, And so he's baptized into the Church of England um, and immediately the next year begins his life as a sadhu. Hmm. Because this is what his mama always wanted. And he's like, "Whatever's whatever's going on in this Jesus thing, it's changed me. But the form of colonial religion isn't going to translate to my people. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not going to understand what that is. They understand what a sadhu is. They get that. And sadhu is like part of the way you became one was you gave yourself to a guru. Like, that's where the word guru comes from is this tradition. And so the guru was like the pe- person that taught you all the things. So uh, Sundar is like, yeah, my guru is Jesus. Like mm. and I'm, I'm doing this mm-hmm. Hindu thing, this you know, sadhu thing as a Jesus follower. So mm. he gives himself to the radical asceticism, mystic trances, the whole thing. Um, and he heads out into this world. Um, and it, of course, doesn't always go well for him. Well, and he's like 16 at this point, 
right? Yeah, yeah, he is exactly. Yeah, still pretty young. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's probably maybe he's like seventeen or eighteen at this point. Yeah, by the time he's really out there, but after the snake throwing, after the snake throwing, yeah. Uh, but it's like people in the culture knew how to welcome him. And so they'd be like, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a Sanu. Come on in, have a seat, you know, here's some popcorn. And then he starts telling them about Jesus and they're like, we're going to get you. So there's these stories about him, like these persecutions that were just insane, but he, he was so itinerant in the early years of his ministry. They called him the apostle with bleeding feet. Um, and he would travel like North into the Kashmir region and Afghanistan um, his first trip to Tibet was in 1908, and that's where he really encountered some radical poverty that he was like, oh, like he felt the way that the Jesus thing was supposed to address that. Um, but he also, <laughs> he was also caught bathing, right? Because you just bathe in, in some cold water, it says, and all the Tibetans tried to stone him because if you were a real holy man, we all know around here, you would never bathe. Oh. Well, oh, the more you know. There you go. <laughs> so, like, this dude is constantly getting rocks thrown at him, people coming Snakes after him. Snakes thrown at him. Yes, <laughs> something's getting thrown at him. Um, but he had this whole mentality in the sadhu tradition that was like suffering is benefit. Mm-hmm. And, and he really understood that as the way of the cross. He was like, if, if Jesus is the wounded savior, then my wounds are saving. Like, he, he got that at that level that you hear the mystics talk about it. That sounds mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about mm-hmm. until you've experienced it? So he was very, he was tied into some stuff. Now, basically, because he's Anglican, his skills are known to the higher ups in the British church. And so the bishop of his diocese, um, Bishop um, Lafori, it says, um, in 1909, we're like, said, listen, man, you need to get ordained. Like, you've got something good going on. We need you. The church needs you. You know, diversity, inclusion, whatever it is. Like, we, we want you to come in. So they're paying attention to this. Um, and so he, he goes to, um, to seminary and he's at Lahore Divinity School um, and basically is a fish out of water. Like every, he doesn't understand the culture. He doesn't understand the rhythms because everybody that's there are British expats. And so it's like this little isolated island of English culture. Mm-hmm. And they, they keep saying, you need to do it this way. Be, you know, wear these vestments you know, speak this way. This is how you say the liturgy because this is how we do it back in England. And he's like, yeah, but we're in India. Like, this is where we're, we're, not, we're not there. And so it was such a conflict that basically they finally release him from his commitments to ordination. I mean, he never gets ordained. He sort of like mm-hmm. turns in his preaching license. Is like, I, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Like the sadhu thing is what I want to do. That's what I'm called to. Mm-hmm. So he leaves and, and becomes and goes back to the life of a sadhu where this is where like all the miracles and the kind of the crazy stories come around Sundar because um, as he traveled around, depending on where he was, um, you know, there were stories about him like communing with a 106 year old woman who had walled herself in a cave and had been there for like, you know, 50 years or whatever. And so he talks about, yeah, I met this woman in the, the mountains and we, we spent many weeks together. Um, there's a story about him getting run out of a village and instead of him throwing stones or snakes at him, they threw him in a well that was full of corpses. And he had to like... As you do. Call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we got this well right here. <laughs> you go here. Hold on, is this the water well or the corpse yeah. well? <laughs> Don't get it wrong because I got it wrong once and it really got weird. Why are these two wells right next to each other? <laughs> we got to move it farther apart. 
So, um, well, so, what happened? Did he come out of the corpse well? <laughs> yeah. So basically, he, he has to sit down there and call for help, and finally, somebody comes by and gets him out of the well. Wow. Um, so, but he had he had this thing that as his popularity and influence grew, he wouldn't baptize anybody because he's like, if I baptize people, they're going to start thinking they're being baptized into my thing and not Jesus's thing. Mm. Which I was, I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. and again has echoes of other things you know we've heard about in what the early church dealt with, mm-hmm. uh, with regard to teachers that introduced them to the Jesus thing. Um, but here's the most unlikely part: is that basically um, in the late 19 teens, like 1918, he becomes famous. His his reputation is so much so in the Anglican Communion and like. This is in the era, you know, just after the, you know, the British Empire is kind of still has this influence. He's, they know about him. And so people keep moving him around in the empire to like, or in the Church of England to like speak to people or whatever. And he becomes like this kind of minor religious celebrity. He's like Michael Curry. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or maybe, maybe even Desmond Tutu, where he's undergone this kind of life of suffering. He's come into this tradition out of his own um, kind of indigenous experience of life. And then, um, has this kind of inner peace and joy. They said he was funny and playful and also just deeply centered. Mm. Saw Western materialism for all its emptiness and darkness and would frequently write about it. He's like, they have all this money and they have no sense of God. Mm. And all he's like, where I come from, we have nothing. But everybody understands what God's, mm. that there's God. Um, and so he wrote about that a lot and basically gets famous. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the kind of, to, to jump to the end, um, he, he, his health fails and he stops traveling and he really, really wants to go back to Tibet. Um, this is kind of where he has really felt this call to, to complete his mission work. Um, he tries to go um, for the first time um, after he's been doing some writing in like 1923, but he has to turn back. He can't get there. He recoups, regains his strength, does some writing, including some of the books I referenced. Um, then it's like, I'm going to try again four years later, 1927, sets out, but he gets sick and he has to come back again. And then finally, 1929, he's like, I'm making, I, I'm going to go. This is it. I feel strong enough. I've got this and toward the end of life. Let's go. And so he marches, he heads out into the Himalayas to go to Tibet and he disappears. Wow. What? <laughs> he was a ghost. What do you mean he disappears? Nobody knows what happened to him. Okay. Nobody knows where he Star went. Wars. Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he probably like fell in a cave, right? But like, it's the way the story oh, is. They they, they, wa- yeah. they talk about how they watched him disappear wow. in the Himalayas, and then he never was heard from again. Interesting. So his feast day is on June nineteenth, um, in our in calendar. Episcopal Church. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and I, it was because I I pulled out. Um, holy men, holy women, and he wasn't in this book. But as Sarah said, there's a lot of like conflicting, overlapping yeah. stuff. So that's his feast day in the Anglican Communion. Okay. Whether the Episcopal Church recognizes him, I mean, like he ain't in the BCP. Mm-hmm. He's not one of the ones in the BCP. But like in some of the other resources we have, he is one, and he's he's a one for our tradition. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, he should be in there. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting, like he, he's, he's this person that I've always found intriguing because like his most faithful expression of his Christianity was in being a sadhu, mm-hmm. you know, and like mm-hmm. he, he was able to transcend it, but not in the kind of creepy way that like you watch mm-hmm. people kind of 
grab bag traditions and mash them together. Yeah. Um, it was also this story about like how our structure gets in the way of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Mm, sure. I mean, shades sure. of John Wesley. Yeah. You know, shade, yeah. Like, the thing. itinerant preacher. And what you said earlier about baptism with him, it made me think of what mm. we're looking at in the, in the Bible challenge right now. We're in Acts. And there's all these stories in Acts where people observe the apostles performing miracles and signs and things. And they're just like, super cool. I want to do that. Baptize me and I will like give me the Holy Spirit so I can do those magic tricks too. Yes. Um, which is not the same thing of what, what you described, but it's that, it's that desire to follow a person or to be a disciple of that thing that you see right in front of you. And what he does is, is to sort of transcend that and to say in this like guru culture, I don't want you to follow me. Yeah. I want you to follow Jesus. And yeah. so baptism doesn't have, I can't translate baptism for you without the church, which I'm, you know, operating beyond. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is also super Anglican. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's like his baptismal theology is robust enough. He won't get into it yeah. as an individual. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, listen, coming out of you know culture that's steeped in Sikhism and Hinduism, it, it, his notion of like the radical autonomous individual isn't really in the mix mm -hmm. in the way it is for Westerners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he really has like a archetypal hero's journey, right? Like he yeah, goes from yeah. the atheist praying, which to me, right away, I can't stop thinking about that. Like what that, like I feel like a lot of us have been there before. Totally, um, mm -hmm. he goes from that to like the series of. <laughs> Let's stone them, drop them in the well of corpse. Let's throw snakes at throw them. Throw snakes at them. <laughs> and he walks off into the sunset. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, that's, a, that's epic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's pretty crazy. It is. It's, it might be the craziest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dixon. You're so welcome. That was awesome. I, you're welcome. I, he's one of my favorites, and I learned about him in Divinity School and have held on to his story, mm -hmm. wrote some papers on him because he's a cool dude. Yeah, Thank you. absolutely. Very cool. Sarah, how are you feeling? All right. That was a really great story. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a bug coming. And <laughs> it was a really great story. And I have an even crazier story for you now. Oh. So I'd like to introduce you to Margaret of Antioch. I did do the kind of cursory, like, tour the internet for, you know, stories kind of thing, like, like you do, and did find a, a website that I think is, is really cool called saintsfeastfamily.com. And it has, um, and I, I brought my laptop so, just so that I could show the people here <laughs> some of the pictures of her and some of the art of her, which is very cool. Um, and then I also have, y'all, this is one of my favorite books ever. Um, on the Saints. It's called A Trimmer of Bliss, Contemporary Writers on the Saints, edited by Paul Ely, who was one of my very favorite writers. And so each of the essays in this book are different saints from a contemporary writer's perspective, um, and a lot of like popular theologians. So the essay that I have on Margaret is written by the contemporary writer Kathleen Norris, so who we yeah. have looked at at St. Paul's and other classes and things. Um, I also have this very nerdy dictionary of saints, which has my husband's name in the front cover from Div School, right. which is like, yeah, it's it tracks. <laughs> um, For those so of you that got, don't like, know, Sarah's husband, Mark, also is on staff here at St. Paul's. And we will hear him on this podcast um, Absolutely. pretty soon. Um, but this is sort of the Dictionary of Saints by Donald Atwater. 
um, is, is sort of like, as it is, a, a dictionary. So it has a dictionary um, entry for Margaret of Antioch. Um, also, she's on Wikipedia, but there's not a lot on Wikipedia about her. Okay, so second, third century. Um, Margaret is born into a um, family in um, the area of modern-day Turkey. Uh, the ancient town of Antioch is in Pistia, which is, which is now crumbled, um, you know, foundations. So it's in modern-day Turkey. And she is the daughter of a pagan priest. She loses her mother in infancy and um, is immediately put into the care of a nurse. And it sounds kind of like from the different sources I've read that daddy just sort of was like, here, take her. <laughs> Not my problem. And, um, and the nurse happened to be Christian. And so this nurse kind of surreptitiously had her baptized and taught her about the Christian faith. Um, and Margaret um, grows to be about 15 years old and is, is what the sources say, a pious virgin. Um, so there's part of her understanding of faith as, um, as living a kind of virtuous, pious life. Um, and she is returned to her father. I guess she has now come of age to get married. And return to her father to sort of begin that process. And he's so charmed by her virtue, but he's really displeased by the fact that she doesn't want to worship idols anymore. Um, she claims the Christian faith. And uh, they have this conflict. Daddy throws her out of the house. And so she goes and returns to her nurse and continues kind of living virtuously as a shepherdess. So you will see her depicted in art with um, uh, sheep as a shepherdess. Around this time, the Emperor Diocletian is persecuting Christians. There's all of this like panic going around about make sure you worship the idols of the empire, not the, the Christian um, uh, way. But within this context, um, the prefect of the city, what's a prefect? Anyone know? Asking the wrong crowd over here. <laughs> <laughs> Let me call Mark Archer Graves. Yeah, yeah, where's Mark Graves? Sounds important. But so let's say city official, important yeah. guy. You, are you Googling it right now? No. Yeah. <laughs> His name is Alibrius uh, uh, or Olibrius, um, prefect of the city. Okay. I'm thinking like Harry Potter, like he's in charge of something. Head in of ancient house. Rome, an official who was in charge of a prefecture, so part of a city. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dude who's in charge sees her and falls in love with her and proposes to her as you do when you meet a 15 year old girl oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and she refuses um, in part because he worshiped idols and has this like relationship to the, um, the, the empire. Um, but also because she says, and I quote, because I am the spouse of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am promised to him and to him I wish to belong. And as you do when you're 15 years old and some guy has just proposed to you, you start preaching at him a little bit. <laughs> and she goes on for a while. Like she makes this, this really eloquent argument to him about idol worship. And, and he pushes back and he says, well, you all, you all Christians 
worship an, a crucified God. And she's like, how do you know that? And, she, and he's like, cause I've been reading all of your material. And he's like, um, you know, just reading up to a certain part. And she's like, well, if you turn the page, you realize that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead <laughs> and provides this like way of life that is, that is um, life changing and big and wonderful. And we in no way worship a crucified God. And I, Surely, I'm not going to worship your lame idols. <laughs> so, but like with like, like a 15 year old like, like, attitude action. Yeah, finger wag, right? <laughs> um, so he's pretty furious and um, has her tortured and throws her into prison. Then, you guys, then she's in prison and the devil appears to her. What? In the form of a dragon. Okay. <laughs> the dragon swallows her whole. <laughs> and while she is, and she happens to have in her hand or some other places say it's around her neck, a crucifix. And because it's the devil, the cross starts irritating the, the dragon's innards. And there's a couple of ways this, this story ends, but my favorite way is that she uses the crucifix to literally puncture her way out oh. of the dragon's belly <laughs> that is pretty intense. and freeze her entirely without harm um wow yes and then the next day they're like you know she has this like dragon experience this is where i want you to see the um the website where i found like they have all these collections oh, wow. of art where she is just sort of emerging from a dragon's belly. Like, Which we will share yes, on our we, episode notes. We will definitely share so you can see all these examples of um, wow. Margaret wow, of Antioch cool. emerging from the dragon's belly. Um, and the next day after that, she is continued to be tortured. They, they try to kill her by fire and then by drowning she miraculously is saved. And while all of this is happening, um, because in, in those days, like these were public executions where you would have a crowd gathered, they watch this happen. They try to drown her. They try to set her on fire and she's okay. Thousands of spectators are all, you know, converted just by wow. the vision of it. And just immediately are like, yes. we want to become Christians too. And then this kind of cracked me up. Ironically, then they were all subsequently executed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, you know, I want to be a Christian. Great. Let's cut off your head. Um, go ahead and get the back of the line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can go in that door. <laughs> and then finally, she was beheaded. Mm. So that's the story of um, crazy Christian, as Bishop Curry would say, crazy Christian, Margaret of Antioch. And I, I want to talk a little bit, if I still have time yeah, to kind of tell the story, um, that in the Roman Catholic um, kind of veneration of saints, she occupies this place of the virgin martyrs. And the martyrs had special status in the cult of saints. They were the first saints of the Christian tradition. They, they were the ones that people could look to their lives and look to the ultimate sacrifice that they gave and be like, whoa. That person was holy. We need to not only look to their life for instruction, but we, but we need to honor them and maybe even honor their dead body or the things that they touched or like build some altars and say some prayers to them. So you see where it goes from there mm -hmm. in terms of sainthood. 
the martyrs really like when you see an extreme death like Margaret's, um, you you really kind of get the sense that um, you know sainthood is costly. Like it mm-hmm. is laying your life out on the line for Jesus Christ. Um, and the virgin martyrs, and this is was kind of interesting to me in thinking about um, you know how the church and Christendom throughout the centuries has looked to saints. When you think, when you hear the word virgin, it's a really charged word in our society now. Like it has a lot of connotations um, for femininity and for um, power and powerlessness. And there is some fault there of the church taking a story and painting it in a sort of like meek, mild light. When Margaret of Antioch and all the other virgin martyrs, there are like 12 of them, I think, um, that each have different stories from different areas. But Margaret's story is really one of power. You mm-hmm. have a, a woman who is, and she's 15 years old, and she is told um, by her father, by the um, kind of leaders of society, by this prefect who wants to marry her, she is told that her value is in getting married and having babies. And that that's what the empire said to human beings, that women's value is in producing human beings and men's value is um, military service. Like those are the, those are the reasons that we need more people to, to follow us. That's where power lies is in childbirth and in violence. Um, And the story of the Virgin Martyrs, the story of Margaret points to a power that is, is not meant to be subversive or meek or mild. It's meant to say, I'm claiming my virginity as a, as, as finding my source and my um, kind of fixed sense of identity and power in Jesus Christ, not in the empire, not in the place that says, this is where your value lies. And, um, and that's where this essay by Kathleen Norris is just so powerful. Um, I, um, I, she notes in this essay, and she wrote it in 1996, so she's, it's, a little, it's, it's not so antiquated, but um, like she's speaking to, and there's so much more that has happened since 1996 in terms of women's rights, but she's talking about, you know, being involved in the Catholic Church and being a progressive Christian and saying like, oh, those virgin martyrs, they set back the church. They made, mm. you know, femininity to be like um, a, a bad thing or, or that, that, you know, virginity and, and womanhood was sort of shut down by the virgin martyrs. And what Kathleen says is, you know, this is not, we need to understand what their story was about, that we need to understand virginity on its own terms. Yeah. Um, and not just as, as something that was sort of like, you know, I think we think of like the, the, the Holy Innocence Day when, yeah. when Herod slain all the babies and they were just innocent, passive martyrs. That's not the story of the virgin martyrs. Hmm. They claimed, and as I told the story, you know, you could hear like all of the virgin martyrs are known for preaching powerful sermons for being highly intelligent, for um, even fearfully intelligent and kind of belligerent about it. Um, they were all betrayed at a young age by someone who's close to them, usually like a father or a mother or a suitor. Um, and so there's, there's something about this story, I think, that is, you know, really connecting to femininity and, um, 
you know, female behavior in the world and in society as having power and not passivity. And I, I just wanted to read y'all a little bit um, from Kathleen's essay. What we resist seeing in late 20th century America, where we are conditioned relentlessly by images of girls and women's bodies as available, is how fierce a young girl's sense of bodily integrity can be. Sometimes it takes a death that makes us see the obvious. Sometimes it is a fierce little girl who is hard to kill, <laughs> who gives witness to a mystery beyond our understanding and control. And in the wild center of that young girl's heart, we glimpse love stronger than death, a love that shames us all. Wow. That's awesome. Right? Wow, that's good. Right? Yeah. That so, was so good. <laughs> craziest saint. Well, and I would say, I like, I was thinking a lot about like labeling like craziest saint and like with your story too, Dixon, that um, like we're talking about people who were not crazy. Right. We're talking about people who had crazy things happen yeah. to them. That's right. Who yeah. gets swallowed by a dragon right. and then like carves her way out. I should also add that Margaret of Antioch is um, the patron saint of women in childbirth. Oh, <laughs> and it's that, like, that, you know, yeah, like no, coming no, out of the dragon's <laughs> belly. <laughs> so women in childbirth should pray to her for special dispensation through their labor pains. Wow. Yeah. I think it's interesting how basically Margaret's ministry basically starts when, when her her nanny like baptizes her. Like that's the beginning of her ministry. That's right. Yeah. And it goes to like 15 years old. And then all of a sudden your guy Dixon, his ministry pretty much starts at 15 yeah. mm -hmm. and goes like through the, to the end of his life. Right. And similar overlays with like the betrayal and rejection of the father. Exactly. Yeah. I thought of that. Yeah. Uh, snakes. Yeah. Snakes. Uh, snakes. Yeah. Fantastical of, beings. I was going to say, if we could go back, I, I, I love what, um, what Margaret, the way that like the, your description of her and her being classified as a virgin helps to kind of do a reclamation on the word virgin and virginity because like it gets used in the bible and i think you're right like we we typically see that as like relating to some sort of like biological category regarding intercourse but it's really about like in the bible like the virgins in the 10 parable of the 10 mm -hmm. they're they're just unmarried women Right. And so it's like, it's like virginity as resistance to the empire. Exactly. You know, in Margaret. And it's really cool how it taking it like that is such a wonderful way to subvert all those bad, you know, Victorian, even purity culture kinds of, you know, baggage that gets loaded on that word mm -hmm. and take it back. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what's so brilliant about uh, Kathleen Norris's essay is that she says, here we are in the church. This is how we see women. This is how we understand girlhood and then getting ready to be married and the, the shift that happens from childhood to womanhood and how virginity hinges that. And what the virgin, the story of the virgin martyrs does is transforms that kind of timeline and says that this, this is um, sort of not about a, a purity culture or belonging or, you know, um, but it's it's about your identity in Christ. It's it's about the, there's a a kind of beauty to it um, mm -hmm. that that has way more to do with power than it has to do with abstinence. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. 
it, it's so, um, it, it's the Magnificat. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I was thinking about that when I said she was 15 years old. You Which know? is, for our listeners, Mary's song um, when she finds out that she's pregnant right. by the Holy Spirit, speaking of another young girl, young girl who's up to some for the kingdom of God. But it's, it's very much this, it's like the Magnificat is a Rage Against the Machine song about how God is going to bring down the powers that be and lift up the powers that ain't because mm-hmm. um, the world's getting turned upside down, which is good news. Yep. Unless you are benefiting from the world as it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, wow, guys, we did it. Yay! <laughs> are there any other final words that you all want to say before? We wrap this up and move and move away from your saint stories and let people vote. I would say um, just to speak to sainthood generally. Yeah. Um, that if you have never really explored the the saints calendar or um, the the books in the Episcopal Church that that kind of have a really wonderful overview of saints are Lesser Feasts and Fasts and Dixon referenced Holy Women, Holy Men. I think there's another one called cloud of witnesses. Um, they, they tell the stories of these very interesting lives of people. Um, and, you know, some people who were interested in um, the, the work of the church and some people whose energy was all about individual piety, but they all like got close to God and they are examples to us. And, and it's just a cool thing to learn about. Um, so that's something yeah. I would, I would just kind of put front and center that it was actually super hard to choose the craziest Christian saint because there's so many really interesting people to read about. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would say too, because we're all the saints of God, you know, and like everyone's life it bears witness to it bears, everyone's life bears witness to something, you know, and I, I like considering the saints because it allows me to reflect on what I bear witness to. And, yeah. um, they they are not necessarily superheroes in the way that they are like enhanced beings from us. They are superheroes in the ways that superheroes are mythic, like help us see things that are true that could be possible in our own lives. Um, and the saints are, are like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This is um, a really fun conversation. Yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> Throwing snakes at people and mm-hmm. yeah, very interesting. Um, Emerging from dragons' bellies. Well, friends, our guests have presented their cases for the craziest saint, and now the power is in your hands. In the episode description and notes is a link to a poll. Let us know who you think told the most compelling story, and that's it. One episode down. Please like and subscribe if you want to hear more. I'm really excited about the upcoming episodes this season. You can see themes for the first 10 episodes on our webpage. It's thematchuppodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at The Matchup Pod. Also, make sure and join our Facebook group, The Matchup Podcast, if you wouldn't love a deeper dive into the podcast. Sarah and Dixon, thank you very much. Thank you. This is awesome. Thank you, Jason, for doing all this hard work. Thank you all for listening. And go ahead and vote. We'll see who wins.